Good morning. This reading is an excerpt from The Culture of Ritual and the Quest for Enlightenment Enlightenment by David Frawley. We have eliminated from our lives the rituals that sustain traditional cultures. This process began with the triumph of Christianity, which reduced the abundance of pagan rituals that permeated all of life to but a few rituals, like Mass on Sunday. Protestant Christianity, in turn, rejected most Catholic rituals, tending to view all rituals as adulterous. Science, in its crude realism, removed us still from, further from ritual, questioning the very existence of God. To fill the void created by a lack of true ritual or sacred action, we have created, perhaps unconsciously, an entire set of false rituals. These rituals of entertainment, sports, politics, and even crime. We have not eliminated ritual from life, but have only succeeded in removing any dimension of transcendence from our actions. We have invested the heroes of sports events and violent movies with a kind of sacred reality and and given them prestige, honor, and adoration. It It is as if they were not mere mortals, but gods and goddesses, glamour images of a higher reality. Even much more of our religion, in which ritual survives at a reduced level, is dominated by false rituals promoting conflict and division between people rather than uniting us with the universe. True ritual acts in harmony with the the rhythms of the universe, uniting us with the great current of time and transformation leading to the eternal. True ritual gives a universal meaning to all we do, and to all with whom we come in contact, including all of nature. It requires being cognizant of the divine presence in the world and the cosmic power and interplay of all the forces in our lives. Ritual teaches us that what we do on a personal or microcosmic level corresponds to what occurs on a universal or macrocosmic level. It shows the way to achieve harmony in life by connecting our personal actions with the cosmic equivalents, uniting the human and the cosmic in the awareness of the cosmic being. Until we rediscover this inner truth of ritual, our lives are likely to remain confused and superficial. Today is the first Sunday of Advent, a time when Christians around the world begin by acknowledging the anticipation of the birth of Jesus. And it's often commemorated, as our story showed us, with lighting of candles on Advent wreaths. So the countdown can also take the form of a calendar. I don't know if any of you have ever seen those Advent calendars. And as a child growing up in a Unitarian Universalist family, Advent was really not anything that was ever on my radar screen, so I wasn't familiar with it at all. It was not until about third grade, when I was at Lisa Kotke's house, that I learned anything about this ritual of Advent and counting down the days to Christmas. The Advent calendar is credited to German Lutherans beginning in about the 19th century. 
And there are many different variations to the calendars. Some pop open little images. Some have a poem or a portion of the story of the gospel of the birth of Jesus or a small gift, a little toy, a piece of chocolate or candy. And some calendars are strictly religious while others are more secular in nature. Lisa explained to me that in the Kotke household, each of the kids had their own handmade calendar with little pockets in it. And in each of these little pockets, their mother had placed a piece of candy. At the appointed time each day, the kids were allowed to have that piece of candy that corresponded to the particular day. I stood frozen, wide-eyed, and in awe. I was absolutely mesmerized by this ritual. I watched as each of the four kids went to their calendar, discovered their treat for the day, showed it to each other, sometimes gloating over who got a better piece of candy that day than the other, and then popped it in their mouth and savored that sweetness. As soon as I got home, I told my mother that I wanted one of those calendars, and she said, fine, fine, you're welcome to make one, go right ahead. So I scurried up to the attic to sort through the mountain of craft supplies that resided there. The source of all crafting goodness in my life was the stash in the attic that came from my grandmother's estate. And actually, to this day, there are still craft supplies in my mother's attic from my grandmother's estate. I spent the next few days carefully constructing my countdown to Christmas calendar, and then I loaded it up with my favorite treats, and I anxiously awaited that appointed time. When the time came, I went to my calendar, I took out my piece of candy, I popped it in my mouth, and then I went back to what I was doing. There was some satisfaction in the activity, but it was mostly, I think, what came from finishing the craft project and being able to look at my beautiful calendar. The next day, the appointed time came and went, and it wasn't until a few hours later that I realized I had missed my time, so I quickly scurried over and had my piece of candy. The third day, the excitement had kind of worn off, and there was no high from the experience. And within a week, I had given up completely and just eaten all of the candy in the calendar. (laughs) So what was it? What was it that captivated my attention, kept me speechless, watching with such intensity as each of the Kotki children retrieved and savored their treat? Was it the candy? Now, some might think that it could have been the candy, um, the idea of a daily authorization of a piece of candy, but you see, access to candy was not restricted in my household growing up, so what was it that intrigued me? I think it was the deliberateness, the patience, and the joy that the entire family seemed to get from the experience. In hindsight, I think it was the ritual That was the magic that was created around the calendar that kept me so captivated. Now, kids love ritual, and as a former director of religious education, I have known to say over and over about the importance of ritual in kids' lives and how important it is to their development. But what about for us adults? Our rituals, including these church-related rituals that are sometimes colloquially referred to as the smells and bells, important to us? And if so, why? 
When delving deeper into these questions, I found quite a bit of overlap between words like ritual, tradition, routine, and habit. In some cases, they were used interchangeably, while in others, the authors intentionally made distinctions. Matt Alspach, in his sermon on ritual states, you'll note that I've been sloppy about the interchanging of words like ritual and habit. This is because I believe that ritual does not change God or the gods but rather it changes us. As a religious people, we encourage ritual and habits that lead to good things, connecting with each other, a sense of meaning and purpose and health and joy, perhaps. One blogger describes a routine as being those functional things that need to happen every day, where a ritual is a series of steps carefully edited, selected, with intention, and sometimes have a side benefit. The side benefit might include relaxation or feeling grounded, some sort of a spiritual connection, a sense of nourishment, a sense of purpose, or just pure enjoyment. And when I think about the Kotki kids eating that candy, it was pure enjoyment and joy. Dictionary.com says that tradition is the handing down of statements, beliefs, legends, customs, information, things like that, from generation to generation. Well, ritual is an established or prescribed procedure or system of religious or other rite. There's a set form in public worship or a book of rites or ceremonies. For me, what sets ritual apart from habit or routine or tradition is that intention. When we are engaged in a ritual, there is a deliberate, focused nature. The goal is not to get it done like the dishes, but to allow ourselves the experience to savor the moment like that piece of candy in the Advent calendar. Now, This may sound kind of silly, but I had never noticed that the word spiritual is actually S-P-I-R-I-S-P-I-R-I-R-I-R-I-R-I-R-I-R-I-R-I-R-I-R-I-R-I-R-I-R-I-R-I-R-I-R-I-R-I-R-I-R-I-R-I-R-I-R-I-
Is it our unwillingness to let go or to have some sort of possible experience with a power greater than ourselves? Is it our need to be rational, the fact that we, <clears throat> that we might secretly be enjoying the ritual, but it kind of scares us a little that we're not rational at that moment and that we find it comforting? Or is it that we don't want to appear stupid because we don't really know what we're doing, like when to sit down or when to stand up or what candle I'm supposed to light? Uh, Or are we self-conscious about looking ridiculous to others? Maybe the ritual brings us back to an uncomfortable time in our lives, a time when we felt that participation was expected, that we didn't have a choice to be involved in the ritual. And could it be that the ritual is no longer the same? It doesn't carry the same meaning for us now as adults. Rituals can turn our attention away from our ordinary lives and help us to place the everyday things of our lives in the context of ultimate acts and meanings. The rituals we engage in can serve many purposes in our lives, and they have multiple functions in family and in culture. Rituals make changes manageable. In a few short hours, Reverend Michael and Eric will be participating in one of the oldest rituals, the marriage ceremony. And this public ritual acknowledges a change in status in a couple's lives. It allows them and the rest of the world to see them differently and to help manage that change symbolically and concretely. Rituals facilitate the transmission of values and beliefs. They help to maintain those traditional forms of culture and religious experience. They help people construct maps of reality which are rooted in the past but experienced in the presence. Rituals contribute to our identity. The chalice lighting is one of the few rituals that Unitarian Universalists can and do call their own. And interestingly enough, in our heavily scholarly world of Unitarian Universalism, we haven't really been able to find the true origin of the chalice lighting. Um, I've been told, this is all lore at this point, there's no data, but I've been told that it may have started in religious education classes, that it started with our kids. And the parents loved it so much, they were like, bring it into the sanctuary. So it seemed to organically spread throughout our Unitarian Universalist congregations in the 80s and 90s. I was raised in the pre-chalice age, and as a young adult, first went to a congregation and was like, oh, that's kind of cool. We never did that as a kid. So it was a new ritual that now is fairly universal in our Unitarian Universalist congregations. Rituals provide support and containment for strong emotions. During times of mourning, groups of people join with each other to bear each other's burdens, to share food, and to express certain words of comfort. They help us to form an identity as part of the family or as part of a community. Meg Cox, who is a UU from Princeton, wrote a book about family rituals. And she says that the special power of ritual is that it can slow time and heighten our senses. And in doing so, we can intensify and deepen our family ties. Rituals provide emotional healing. 
personal and relational healing that is needed for a very variety of stages of human life. And they can become an important part of that healing process. Now, rituals can actually change our neurobiology. Rituals produce positive limb, I'm going to get this right, positive limbic discharges, which lead to warmth and closeness among people. They tend to stimulate both the left and the right parts of our brain, and the result is a deeper emotional experience. Thus, rituals hold a level of meaning and significance that words cannot capture. In addition, there's a kinesthetic aspect to ritual. The body's muscle memory can have a very positive impact and influence. It can help us to connect with those parts of ourselves that we're unable to express fully with words, but can express through connections, through movement, or through rhythmic sounds. Perhaps in our world of current compartmentalization and living with barriers that keep us between home and business and between partners and between partners and children and between neighbors, that craving for ritual in our denomination is a cry to break free from those barriers and to really reconnect us once again to each other and to our innermost selves. Have any of you heard of this unique uh, UU holiday called Chalika? Chalika. We heard a song, actually, about Chalika. And it is a, a celebration of our seven principles that starts the first Monday in December. So tomorrow it starts. Each night, the seven nights... Um, as described in our musical interlude, we light a chalice for one of our UU principles. And this little ritual holiday was invented by Daylene Marshall in about 2005, and it's caught on through social media. In fact, the Facebook page has close to 3,000 fans on it right now, so you can find it on Facebook. And as with any new ritual, there are those that love it and those that think that it's, well, kind of silly. What intrigues me most about this holiday of Chalika is that it was created at all. The fact that I think it speaks to our desire to have some holiday and some ritual that's just ours. I don't think it's a coincidence that Chalika happens around the same time that other traditions are publicly displaying their faith and their rituals. And I, I think it's a way that you use get to say, hey, we can celebrate this. This can be part of our heritage. I know that as a child, I, I probably would have kept up with Chalika more than I did with my Advent calendar because it had, would have had some meaning for me. It would have connected me to my own faith, not to somebody else's. So how can we allow others to engage in a ritual that doesn't fit for us? How do we address that visceral reaction in the pit of our stomach that happens, that feeling that screams, no, stop, when somebody starts engaging in a ritual? I think, honestly, it's time for us to make peace with that voice, to acknowledge that the ritual, that the experience exists, but that we don't have to be ruled by it any longer that we can allow ourselves to have our own rituals 
and still allow others to have their rituals. This is something I think we can do. I think it's something we should do, something that could deepen our own spiritual growth to help us feel more connected to ourselves, to others, to our community, and to the world. So, happy Chalika, everyone. (laughs) Blessed be.